Good morning. All right, let's uh, begin our class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study again. We ask that you'll join us today and our hearts will, will draw to you. Our minds will be enlightened by you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly glimpses of our God. And the title this week is The Bible and History. And the first three paragraphs in the lesson state, Is human history a meaningless series of events or is there a central direction toward a specific goal all according to a plan? The Bible makes it clear that the latter is true. Bible writers in both Testaments insist that God directs history and reveals himself in it. Yet, not all history reveals God's will. Humans are free to make bad choices, choices that influence history. The point is that just because God works through history doesn't mean he causes all that happens. What it means instead is that despite the machinations and evil of human beings, God is there working out his ultimate will and that, his wi- that he will bring human history to a grand and glorious close. Now, biblical Christ- Christians believe that the Bible writers operated within the framework that God has revealed and that he inspired them to record the most significant events in human history. So, what do you think about this, this opening of our lesson this week? I thought something was very well stated in there. What, what did you what did you think the, the, do you th- what do you think about the idea that though God works through human history that he doesn't cause all things that happen in history <clears throat> isn't that an important thing to to be aware of I, I think we should realize that it's not all world history it is the history of God's chosen people basic basically the Bible tells the history of God's chosen people and other pe- other nations that come in contact with them and the effect it had on them. But there was a lot of, of going on in the world that is not recorded. Excellent point, uh, that, the, that the Bible is not a history of, of the world. It's a history of the plan of salvation through God's, God's agencies or his people, that he chose the nation of Israel to be the conduit through which the Messiah would come. And this is where the spotlight of the Bible focuses. But we don't get a lot of history, for instance, of what happened in, what's happening in China or what's happening in, in North America with the American Indian tribes and so forth. We don't get much of that history, even though things were transpiring in the world during the same time. Uh, is there a difference to you whether God causes something to happen or whether he allows something to happen? Yes. yes. Okay. Do you know that, that some patients come to my office and they don't see the difference? You see, well, God had the power to stop it. And since he didn't stop it, then he wanted it to happen. Why did God let my mom get killed in a car wreck? Why did God let me get molested as a kid? Why did God let this happen? Why did God let that happen? These questions. What do you say to those questions? Explain the great controversy. In 50 words or less. (laughs) Certainly, great controversy, I think, is a great explanation. How would you tell somebody that who is not already familiar with the foundation of that? She said that's hard to do. If a person has kidney failure and refuses dialysis, and you know they're going to die, you have a dialysis machine that can save their life, but you respect their decision and let them die, is that the same thing as taking a gun and shooting them? No. No. You see, allowing something to happen by someone's free will choice and inflicting something upon them are two different things, aren't they? Absolutely. Is it the same as them taking the gun and shooting themselves? 
My mother did that. Um, she, she declined dialysis. And um, her only cousin had been on dialysis for many years. And as the relationship between those two had developed, she had made the decision that she was not going to do that. And um, I think there's, a, there's many things that happen because of this broken world that they're not straight up. So, so the significance is, of course, in the question, allowing something to happen versus inflicting it upon them, is ultimately how God treats the wicked in the end. Does he allow them to reap the choices they've chosen, which is separation from him and ultimate death, or does he inflict death upon them? Are they the same thing? I can tell you in dialogues that I've had with people that hold a certain different other view, they make the argument there is no distinction. If God lets it happen, or if he causes it to happen, it's either way God's doing it, so God's doing it. Is it really the same? No. Well, are there examples of God allowing things to happen, but the Bible sometimes makes it sound like he caused it to happen? Examples in Scripture, where God allowed something to happen, but it makes it sound like he caused it to happen. Can you give me an example? Saul's death, she says. Remember Saul's death? In one place it's described as Saul falling on a sword, committing suicide. And in another scripture, that's in the, in the second Samuel text, I believe, in the, in, in, or the first Samuel. And then in the Chronicles description of the same event, it says that therefore God put him to death for his disobedience and visiting the witch of Endor. So in one scripture, God is described as putting him to death. In the other scripture, we have God allowing him to fall on a sword and commit suicide. Yes? The Babylonian capture of Israel. I mean, God is sending the north down to capture Israel. Excellent. Another great example. God allowed it to happen, but it describes as God causing it to happen. How about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Yeah. And it says it multiple different ways, multiple different times. God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. I mean, it says it multiple different ways. Um, and what about God's wrath? When, when God allows people to reap those things they've, they've chosen, do we find theologians sometimes make it sound like God is inflicting something upon them? Yeah, I mean, we, we hear this, uh, this confusion. And I think it's a very important thing to recognize that God does not cause or inflict or impose the things he permits. Not the same thing. Sunday's lesson, somebody read the second paragraph, starts the circular. The circular dial of a watch can be deceptive as the hands revolve around and around. They can give the illusion that time recurs in a cycle, but this is not reality. The fact is that human life runs in a line, not in a renewing circle. Time, according to the Bible, is a one-way street. Do you have an insight into, first off, what they're addressing here to shoot down? The, the Mayans, the Incans, the Hopi, the other American native tribes, the Babylonians, the ancient Greeks, the Hindus, and the Buddhists, and the Janus all teach a wheel of time. That, that, that time repeats itself in um, great periods of ages, and the ages repeat, and you will live over and over and over again in an age to come. You're living in this age, this time, but when you die in this age, there'll be another time when time repeats itself, the wheel of time that just keeps circling. 
Yeah, and, and reincarnation is part of that process. Yes, we live again and again and again in this wheel that just keeps turning. This is interesting that all these other religions and philosophies teach this wheel of time. Whereas, of course, Scripture teach a lin- teaches a linear time. An origin of beginning, in the beginning, God. An origins of endings, um, and that time moves from A to, uh, to- forward towards B, not, not a repetitive cycle. So, and I think most of us here are comfortable with the linear time existence, not the cycle of wheel, right? We don't need to uh, explain that part out further. So what's the significance, though, of realizing that life is linear? When you realize life is linear and not, not repetitive cycles, what, is this, what are the significant uh, points of that? Well, there's a beginning and an end. We only have one chance. We only have one chance. Um, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that, because I've had many chances in my life. Well, we have one lifetime to live. <laughs> okay, one lifetime to live. Okay. We have a second life to, to, try, to try and correct all our mistakes. Okay, one life. Okay. Um, what about choices, though? Yes. Wait until tomorrow because you really only have this period right this moment. And to, if you wait until tomorrow to make the right choices, you may never get there because it's always now. She says if you wait till tomorrow to make the right choices, you may never get there. I know there's a lot of noise going on next door for some reason. They have no idea what's going on. I want to talk about this choice thing. Do you understand that the, the choices you make in life change the trajectory of your life? The person you married changed the trajectory of your life. You're in a different path with a different place with different kids because of the person you married than if you'd have married another person, the kids you have wouldn't be here today. It's a different outcome, a different flow. Well, can you also say that it changes God's trajectory for your life too? Um, I don't know. It's a little interesting. God's trajectory for our life. I'm not sure what you mean. God's trajectory. You mean like his plan for our life? Yes. Certainly we can, yes. Okay, I see what you mean now. Derail that. Sure, absolutely. Our freedom can derail God's plan, no question. We have examples of that in the early church, early history of the Adventist church, when a couple of individuals were called by God with a prophetic message and turned it down. If you all remember the history. Yeah, and so he moved on. Where you went to school, if you went to a different university. Where you live, your life, you're going to meet different people, have different relationships, maybe different job. I mean, your, your life takes a different course based on the choices we make. Um, maybe you chose to, be, to work late on September 11, 2001 at the Trade Tower in New York, which happened to one of the stories. The person was running late. Changed the trajectory. Yes? One thing with living linear life is you can only know the past. You don't know the future. And so what you're addressing is we make choices we do not know the future. If we did know the future, we might not make that choice. But because of that linear, we cannot jump ahead and jump back. Okay. So with this linear essay, she's making some great points. So with that, history does not change. So put that in the context of God's plan of salvation. If history does not change, what does change? Say that. We change. That's right. Our hearts, minds, character change. We are changing. But the history of our lives, facts of past don't change, do they? Did Adam's choice in Eden change the, the trajectory of human history? Yeah. Do you notice that? That single choice. Um, and what course was humanity on after Adam sinned? Downward. Well, downward course towards eternal death. 
Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And God intervened, God's interventions introduced, and I want you to understand, humanity after, after Adam sinned, with, with God stands back and doesn't do anything. If he just allows events to transpire, humanity will cease to exist. Self-destruct, cease to exist, terminate, terminal condition. So God introduces into human history a new event that altered the course. Now there's a different outcome. There's a, there's a fork in the road, and we have a choice at that fork. We, we want to stay on the, on the trajectory that Adam put humanity on, that we're born with, or do we want to take the trajectory that Christ has offered us? We now have a choice. Which history do we want? Which path do we want to go down? But look at Thursday's lesson, third paragraph. It says, the whole doctrine of salvation uh, can be expressed in one sentence. God cancels our hopelessly stranded history and in its place puts his history. Through him, the history of slavery to sin is ended in our life. Through him, the stains of our past should not rise up to accuse, torment, and mock us. Our personal history, which would condemn each one of us, is replaced with Jesus' perfect history. When you, when you became saved and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and when you woke up the next morning, do you remember being born in Bethlehem? <laughs> I mean, did your history change? This, this is uh, hopefully poetic and not to be taken literal. Yes? Especially since knowing that history helps us to be wiser for the future. The mistakes we made yesterday and God was kind enough to bring it to light and we learned from it, then we can be wiser and better instruments for him going forward in our lives. So if we, if we lose sight of that history... No, that's very well said. Very well said. And I want to really point this out and flush this out because you would be surprised. You, you look at that, you guys got a clear insight, you saw that, and you go, wait a minute, here. But I'm going to tell you, there's a large body of Christians that look at that and go, praise God, praise God that my record in heaven has been erased, the history of my sins is gone, that when the, when the heavenly record books are open, the history of my mistakes are no longer there, they see the perfect life of Jesus standing in the record book under my name, that's my life history now. That's what a lot of Christians, and particularly Adventists, believe. When they look in the record book and see the history of your life, do they see the history of someone born in Bethlehem? who lived 33 years, went around doing miracles, was crucified on a cross. But what happens to all the history that everyone else has experienced with you? Are their minds erased? Well, this is the point I'm making. But they, they, people, have, have, has anybody besides me not heard this? Anybody else heard this? Yes. Okay, yes. And I want you to guys see very clearly, this is not what it means to, to, to erase sins out of the record books. God doesn't change history. He changes characters, hearts, minds. He erases sinfulness from our, the motives of our hearts. He cleanses us in the inner man. There is a transformation that happens, but the records of historical uh, life stand. Yes? If it had been erased, we could never be sure that sin would never be an issue again. It's the very fact that that history will remain for eternity that keeps the issue of sin from ever Rising up again. The reason sin never rises again is because all the events on planet Earth and all this whole terrible, some people use the word, quote, experiment with sin, this experience with sin and God's victory over it will be remembered. And because it's remembered, it will never rise again. 
Yes. It seems to me that just it causes us to look the wrong direction. You know, when when God comes and starts moving and changing in our lives, He's changing us for the future. He's not altering the past. So it's, it just like, literally has flipped us the wrong way. I like what you say. Flipped us the wrong way. Exactly right. Looking in the wrong direction. Now, question to you guys. Good-hearted people have, have, have come up with these ideas, believing that they are presenting messages to bring hope. What would be the underlying reason that they would suggest such a thing? Why would this idea about our history being replaced with the historical life of Christ emerge? What, what, what is that trying to address? Fear, fear, fear of God, God the Father. Oh, fear of God the Father. Okay, what else? The wonderful elements that you brought out in this class uh, understand so well. The, the question of are you facing judgment versus the, the are you running to the arms of a loving God that simply wants to embrace you and help you to come into a reflection of him and a, and a, a welcomeness and understanding. I, I, I love it. Yes. Russell. This fear of God the Father has a root as well. It's a misunderstanding of his character and his law. Yes, I found that a little more because I think that's really where, where it's happening. Where did Christianity take this divergence? Because if you look New Testament, New Testament teaches, let's just run through a couple of the metaphors. I will write my law on your hearts and minds. Okay? Uh, we'll circumcision the heart by the Holy Spirit. We'll have the mind of Christ. We'll be renewed in the inner man. We'll be reborn. We'll be recreated. The old is gone. The new has come. Notice over and over again, the message of the New Testament is a message of? renewal, transformation, recreation of the inner man of the person. Healing. So the New Testament church, and if you look at the first and second century church in their historic writings, they did not teach this other idea. When did that happen? When did this other thing start? And Russell alluded to it when he said something about God's law. And I really want you to get this, this where, where, where Christianity took a divergence. And it was, it was when imperial Rome constructs came into, and we started viewing God's government like a Roman emperor. And God's law, like an imposed law. And, and how do you deal with the violations of Roman's law? When Rome's law is broken, how do you deal with that? Punishment. And how do you avoid punishment? You have to have something stamped on your records. Records have to be cleansed. Okay? Rather than, if it's medical records, rather than legal records, when the medical records lay out all the pathology and all the, all the sickness and all the cancer and all the, the, the problems that you have in your body, you don't go over and start erasing stuff out of the medical records. You go over and start healing the person with disease, and the records will show the disease, and the records will show the intervention, and the records will now show that the person is well. And so the way the heavenly records ultimately get cleansed is by your heart, mind, and character being cleansed. Yes? Well, two things. I think if you're looking at it as a legal issue, just like on earth when we've done something bad and we get it on our record, we want to do anything we can to get it expunged from our record. And I think a lot of people look at Jesus as expunging our record. The other point is... Nice point. I was reading in um, Luke... One, Zachariah's song, and talking about prophesying about Jesus' life, why he came. In Luke 1, uh, well, it, it goes on about how he's coming and so on and so forth. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. In verse uh, 73, it starts, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us 
to serve him without fear. Okay, so there you can remove the fear of and him. Yeah. All of our days. The lesson points out, again, that we live our lives in a linear direction. Is God's life and existence linear? In other words, is God confined within the constraints of time? Does he live within the flow of time, or is he outside the bounds of time? He's outside. Do we have any inspiration that might give insight into this? And I heard Wendell say, I am. You know, the great I am. I am that I am. In Revelation 1 says, 1-8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 21-6, I am the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. In Revelation 22-13, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Here's what uh, one of the founders of our church, how, how she saw this in uh, First Bible Commentary 1099. I am means an eternal presence. The past, present, and future are like to God. Think that through. Past, present, and future are alike to God. Does that sound linear? No. He sees the most remote events of past history and the far distant future with as clear a vision as we do the things that are transpiring daily. Think that through. Hard to understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, what is this? This is significant. I want to spend some time. What is the significance of this? What would it mean if God were constrained to a linear existence like us? Take your mind down the consequences if that were true. Yes. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to self. He died to the human nature that he had. And he rose again all completely divine. Okay, so we're not, we're not talking right now about Jesus' humanity. Because one of the things that... But if he hadn't died to self and had taken humanity with him, he couldn't have been forever and in the beginning and the end. So I, it's sort of like I think we have to die to self and let God in to become divine like he is so we can live forever. We're not talking about Jesus' humanity. Jesus lived in linear existence as a human being. Right. We're talking about God outside of Jesus' incarnation. But when he died, he, he lost that no, he didn't. existence. Didn't no, he did not. He okay. took humanity to heaven. He's still human. Okay. He took a new, renewed, regenerated humanity, humanity that was pure like Adam was supposed to be, but it still was humanity in linear existence. Okay. So one of the implications, well, we'll come to that in a second. Let's just go back to the question. What would it have meant if God were constrained to a linear existence? Well, he would have had some. He wouldn't have known the future. That's right. He wouldn't have been able to know. He could have. He could have known possible. He could have had omniscient knowledge. In other words, he could have had the great calculator brain of all calculator brains, where he could calculate all possible uh, scenarios with all possible choices and all possible consequences for everybody. So he's a great calculator in the sky, but doesn't know until we make our choices, because he doesn't know the future. He just knows what possibly might happen with every possible eventuality. He knows all those too, but he doesn't know which one will happen until it does if he's in linear existence. It would also mean that he would have a beginning and an end. I like that very much, which means, this is another way to say that, which is, means that God would have some power over him. He would be constrained by time. Time would rule his existence rather than him ruling time. You see, it diminishes him if we put him in linear existence. Yes, right here. It would make it harder to trust him because he would be guessing about what the future holds. Yes, it would be harder to trust him. It would undermine our confidence because he's guessing now. Yes. Flipping it on the other side. The but we're going to get to the other side in a minute, so don't jump ahead. <laughs> okay? So still, we're answering the question, what would it mean 
if he were constrained in time. We wouldn't would have a harder time trusting him. He wouldn't know the future. He'd be guessing. He would have a, a time constraint over him that he would operate with him. Um, he wouldn't be able to apply Christ's achievements to those who lived before Christ. We'll, we'll explain on the other half. But just the idea. How is it that those who live before Christ can benefit by what Christ did? Because God lives outside time and can apply what Christ did anywhere in time. The past, the present, and the future are alike to him. They're not like us, but those who, who were saved in the past were saved by Christ. If God is outside time, now we'll get to the other side. If God is outside time, what would that mean, Linda? Well, that would mean he created Satan knowing what Satan was going to do. He created us knowing what we were going to do and what he was going to do, and he did it anyway. Yes, it does mean that, doesn't it? And what's the implications of that? Freedom. Freedom. That's, it's powerful. We really are free. Um, that he created time, and he's not constrained by time. In other words, there's nothing that rules over him. He rules over everything. He can control time. Is what this would mean if he's outside of it. Um, thus, he can stop the sun in its orbit for Joshua to have a longer day to kill the nasty, wicked people. <laughs> or he can slow time down or speed time up, which means he can make time dilation fields, which means time passes faster in one place in the universe than it does in another place in the universe, so that 6,000 years on earth could be six days in heaven. So God is not slow in keeping his promises. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years, the scripture says. God could God could manipulate time this way. The angels may have only had six days since all this happened in Adam and Eve. Have you ever thought of that possibility? We recognize uh, more of the sacrifice Christ made when he assumed humanity because he stepped out of a nonlinear existence into an eternal linear existence. Christ now exists in time because he took humanity and he took that humanity back and he still lives in a linear existence now. What a sacrifice that he made for us. Really, if you had, let your mind meditate on that for a minute. What he gave up for us. And then he can take what Christ has achieved and apply it anywhere in time. So if we imagine this as, a, as an actual remedy to an illness, if a remedy does not exist to an illness. If it doesn't exist anywhere in history, human history, past, present, or future, it doesn't exist. It can't be applied anywhere. But once the remedy exists, if you have the ability to transverse time, let's say we had a time machine. Let's say we could travel through time with a time machine. We could take penicillin back to people in the dark ages and we could cure people. We could take antibiotics back to the people during the plague and we could stop the plague. You see, we could apply that remedy in the past if we had the ability to transverse time. Once Christ achieved what he achieved, God lives outside time. So the people in the past were being healed by the, by the remedy Christ achieved sometime in our linear future. Is that confusing to people? It is? Well, maybe we should talk about it for a minute. The whole idea of time can be confusing for people. It doesn't really confuse me too much. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. A lot of time thinking about time, yes. Well, I mean, to me, one of the most precious things is that we're being linear and forgetful. When we have a painful thing happen in our life, it kind of gradually subsides and we kind of have forget and we go on with our lives. But God has a perfect memory. And if he remembers everything 
equally from beginning to end. He always knew the pain of the cross without diminishment. That's right. And always will. And always will. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, it also means though, that God can predict accur- accurately the future. Because he, the future is outspread. He can see decisions being made in real time and knows exactly what will happen before it happens in our linear existence, which gives us greater trust and confidence in him. Yes? So, I mean, I'm going to make you on linear time and all that stuff. So is heaven nonlinear? Uh, actually, I think my personal view is that, because uh, the lesson does suggest that, that linear time, or maybe it wasn't the lesson, maybe it was some, some of the resources I was reading this week on this. I might have read it some of the resources, but some commentaries were suggesting that after sin is done away with, we, we, we no longer live in time. We live in, we live in eternal non... I don't think so. I think we, will, we are linear beings. We will always live in time. And the evidence to suggest that would be things like um, in Isaiah, that from one new moon and one Sabbath to another, we will come and worship before the Lord. I mean, this is, this, how do you measure that if there's not linear time going on? Do you think that in heaven there's linear time? For, for created beings, but God will still live outside time. God is not constrained by it but we will always be linear beings. There's a thousand-year period after we are resurrected or and or translated into heaven. And that thousand years is a linear time period. When the, earth, when the new earth comes down to, uh, the new Jerusalem comes down to earth and the wicked dead are raised, there's a period of time goes by where they build implements of war and then they march in the city and so forth. I mean, this is linear time. Yes? But, but it's linear time that God has inspired authors to, to convey a message. To, to humanity who lives in, in linear time. It, it, and, you know, if, if there's no end linear, for, the, for the resurrected and for the righteous, then... Time, time will have a different experience for us, but I still think if, uh, we do not experience all events simultaneously. Nonlinear time, uh, when you throw a baseball up, you already experience it being hit, caught, thrown back in all simultaneously. It's all happening at once because there's no linear events happening. Okay, We may not have an end to our existence because we will live immortally. So there's no end. We live eternally on. But events still happen in a linear sequence. Mm-hmm. Yes? I think the part that I'm having a hard time understanding is Christ becoming linear after the cross. Why is that hard? Well, I don't know. <laughs> the question is, do you have a hard time with the idea that Christ is still human? No. It's just... So everything that happened at the cross applied in past, but now Christ can't apply anything in the past because he's linear. Christ didn't apply any of it anyway. He didn't apply any of it. He achieved it. It was applied by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes what Christ applies to our, what he has achieved and applies it to our heart. As if it's sufficient for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the Spirit won't come. When he comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He speaks what he hears. He's going to take what is mine and make it known to you. Christ could not be omnipresent after he left earth. That's where the Spirit came, so we could have Christ's presence via the Spirit in our hearts after he ascended, because he no longer was in all places at all times, because he was still confined by humanity. Okay. (laughs) That goes even a little deeper in that Jesus being linear could not apply that prior to that moment, but the Holy Spirit could. Sure. So for Jesus had to go and, and make that available to all time. That's right. Exactly. Well said. I agree with that completely. Yeah. I mean, this is a, I mean, obviously, these are concepts that are pretty deep, aren't they? 
It's pretty fun though, isn't it? To expand our mind, to push our understanding, to consider. When I consider what Christ gave up in leaving a nonlinear existence to enter human time for all eternity, give up his omnipresence, give up his ability to be in all events simultaneously, that's amazing. It's humbling. It's, it's just astounding. It makes me admire him all the more to consider that. For some, if God lives out of linear time, do they interpret then that that's why we are predestined? They have the predestination of, of each life because God knows beginning from the end, so we can't change that, that end and that middle. So they say we, our life is, this is our destiny. Whatever happens, that's meant to be. What you've brought up is another way that the issue between foreknowledge and causation get confused. On the one side of it is, God knows, therefore he causes. And since God already knows what's going to happen, well, it doesn't matter what I would do because he already knows what I'm going to do, so it's like I don't have any choice. That's a a distortion of reality. Imagine we had a time machine, and we could travel into the future, and we could watch the next Super Bowl. We watch every play, we know every turnover, we know exactly what the score is going to be, and we come back to our time now. We've seen it happen. We know who's going to do what. Are we causing it? No, our knowledge of what will happen is not saying thing as causing what will happen. God has foreknowledge. He sees it. But his knowledge does not mean he, in, he makes it happen that way. People confuse those two. And I want to go into Sunday's lesson because it's going to expand this question a little further. It says, fourth paragraph, it says, in Sunday's lesson, it says, we are talking, of course, about divine revelation. Our Lord knows the future, knows all the possible choices humans can and will freely make, and he has told us how it will turn out in the end, whatever choices we make in, uh, whatever choices we make in the meantime. Now, you, had, you had a comment? Just that in Scripture, the only thing I read about predestination, and I might be wrong, is that we're predestined to salvation, that that's God's plan for us. We can choose something else. No, I I like that. That's right, because she's now given us the accurate Bible understanding. God predetermined before, this was said earlier, that uh, God knew before he created anything what man would do. And God predetermined with his foreknowledge that man would would, uh, disobey and and go into sin. God predetermined that he would send Christ. Christ would come to intervene to alter that trajectory of mankind's eternal demise to predestine that mankind would be saved. He predetermined that man would be saved. Now, what he predetermined was, in my understanding, what he would do with his actions, with his conduct, that he would take humanity upon himself, and in Jesus Christ, the human race was saved. See, as long as we have one panda bear alive, panda bears are not extinct. As long as there's one, they're not extinct. Because of Jesus Christ, the human race was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. If no other human being ever accepted what Jesus did, If every other specimen of humanity was lost, the human race, the species, was still saved. And God predetermined that humankind would be saved, and it was in Jesus Christ. The only question remains now is how many other individuals, because he offers freely the healing remedy that will transform our hearts, minds, bring us back into unity with God, and save us eternally too. It's all free to us. We can take it if we want it, but he doesn't force it. He offers it freely. Yes. That comes back to my question. I believe Jesus is human. What I'm talking about is his character. Yes. Um, he had two characters uh, warring within his mind. No, two motives, two not motives. characters. Okay, two motives. Two motives. A divine motive and a human, not sinful, but human. A, a selfish motive. Selfish motive. Mm-hmm. 
But he never acted on that selfish motive. He gave that up at the cross, didn't he? Yeah, and I would say it would even not even, maybe motive is still too strong a word. Maybe we should say selfish temptation, selfish desire. Yeah. We, we see that reflected in Gethsemane when he had those human emotions tempting him to act in self-interest. Right. <clears throat> but he, he overcame that, those, those desires or temptations right. mm-hmm. by this motive of love and self-sacrifice. Right. Mm-hmm. And he destroyed that at the cross when he was raised. Exactly. He raised in a yeah. humanity that no longer had that internal right. drive or temptation. Yeah, the same nature that Adam had when he was created. Yes, he cleansed humanity right. in himself. And so we have to allow that to happen in us in order to live forever. That's right. right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So the the lesson said that uh, he knows all the possible choices of humans can make. Well, I I do think that's true, but is it more than he knows the possible choices? He actually knows all the actual choices humans do make. In the Old Testament it says, before I was born you knew every day of my life when I was in the womb. Because this is, uh, this is a real debate in the church. Open theism, which means he doesn't know what we will do until we do it, but he knows what we, all the possible choices we could do, but he just doesn't know which one until we exercise our free will to do it. And the reason people take that position is because they're trying to preserve human freedom and they're trying to preserve God's character so he's not a maniacal control freak and, and, and we actually have a free universe. The problem with taking that view, though, it puts God in linear time. God doesn't know the future. He's in linear time, too. He's waiting for things to unfold before he can He's a great calculator. He can calculate all possibilities, but he doesn't know. And so it denies this idea that God lives outside time. He's actually constrained by time. It denies the idea that God, the past, present, and future are alike to him. It denies that, that view. I accept the view, in my view, that God, past, present, and future are all alike to him. He's outside the constraints of time. Time does not rule over him. And therefore, he can see with a perfect eye what we will do in the future, not what we might do in the future. And he knows, and the beauty here, and this is what makes it even more beautiful about his character, makes your mind around this. He knew Judas would betray him. He didn't think, he didn't know Judas might betray him. He knew Judas would betray him. And how did he treat Judas? He got down and washed his feet, just like all the rest. It did not change how God treated him and think that through. If you know somebody's going to betray you, if you know they're going to do that, does it affect how you'll treat them? It didn't affect Christ. Christ loved him just as much and treated him with just as much grace, just as much kindness. He didn't harden his heart against Judas. He covered for him as Judas left betrayed. Yes, he did. He protected his reputation. Protected his reputation. This is what we, we, we see when we understand. But if he doesn't know, then Jesus is going, well, he might still turn back. If I treat him good, then maybe he'll come back to me. I'm hoping. I'm throwing the dice. I'm gambling here. I don't know. It might be the best play I've got. Do you like that view of God? This is what happens when we go into this open theism view. God is a gambler. Gambling, taking his best guesses. Yes. Actually, it feels good that you, know, you have, when it dawns on you, that he not only forgives your past sins, but he knows every sin you're ever going to commit too. And died uh, knowing that. I mean, when we have a concept that God knows everything we're going to do and have done, nothing surprises God. But see, I think he views it completely differently. When we say things like you just said, he knows our past sins, he knows our future sins, it because of our conditioning, because of the way we've been raised, because of the, uh, the lens we've always seen it through, we almost always hear that as the bad deeds we do, the stuff we do. And, and he forgives us. And we almost always hear that as, you know, he doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't hold it against us. That's how we hear it. I'm going to suggest to you we should look at through the lens of 
an HIV-infected man and woman have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. Nothing. We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We didn't do wrong. God knows we were born in a condition we did not choose. You didn't choose this condition you were born in. I didn't either. He knows it. That baby growing up with that HIV is going to have all kinds of symptoms of that condition it didn't choose. It's going to be ravished by that condition. And the symptoms of our condition are sins. We have all kinds of sins that we're going to do. And God knows that we're going to do these things until we have a new heart and right spirit, until he renews us in the inner man. We have no power to not sin in ourselves. We're helpless. God knows it. But he doesn't look at it as, oh, you're bad people, I'm going to hold it against you. He looks at it as, oh, you poor child, you're so sick of heart, you're so sick of mind, you never chose, I want to heal you. Huge difference. And that's why he's always gracious, because he knows we can be healed and cleansed, and he knows that none of us chose this condition. What we have the choice over, if the HIV-infected baby grows up, there's a cure, a remedy that will cure it, offered free to that child, now the child's adult of age, and the child refuses the remedy. The child's accountable for that. We are accountable for whether we accept what Jesus has done for us and open our hearts to experience his transformation, or whether we reject Christ and harden our hearts against him. That's what we're accountable for. We're not accountable for the condition we're born in. Does that make sense? Hand in the back. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, God in the absolute is hard for us to comprehend, but he could not promise us eternal life if he only existed in linear time. He has to be outside of time to be able to do that. Otherwise, he could only say there's a possibility. Yeah, nice. Very. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Evidence is from Scripture that God knows our choices before we make them. I always like the ark. Either Noah is a con man, or God is a fraud. I mean, the 120 years he's preaching, you can have salvation, get on the ark. You can have salvation, get on the ark. 120 years to the whole population, get on the ark, you can have salvation. Why did he only build one ark? Either he wasn't really offering them salvation, or he knew that nobody would take him up. It's one of the two. He couldn't be really offering it to them and not know unless he was building more arts. Does that make sense to y'all? What about the prediction that uh, if you choose kings, these kings are going to destroy your nation and take your women and tax you and all this other stuff? Or what about Cyrus, named 150 years before Cyrus was born, that Cyrus would be the king who set Israel free? How did he know that? How could he know? Monday's lesson, second paragraph, says, the reader is allowed to see the painful historical process by which the capital city Jerusalem is to be handed over to Babylon in fulfillment of God's prediction of Israel's fate. Do we have evidence from history that history and the Bible harmonize? Talking about history. History and Bible, do they harmonize? Yeah, they do. More and more archaeologic evidence that comes forward sustains the history that we have in the Bible. Um, You probably have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm not going to go through that. It's in the notes, but it's phenomenal what they found. Bottom line, they found uh, um, elements of every Old Testament uh, scripture, every Old Testament book of the Bible except Esther was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In In the entire manuscript, two entire manuscripts of Isaiah were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the two entire manuscripts of Isaiah, they were... Um, word for word, 95% the exact same as what we have in the today's Bible. And the, the, the 5% that was different were just typos or spellings. That's it. And, it was, and it's a 1,000 years older than anything ever before. So you know, we have good, good history, good, good accurate history, what we have there. 
Um, any evidence that, uh, that God influences human decision-making? Do we have real, real freedom to... Do we have freedom to make decisions that affect the outcome of history? Or does God override, does God manipulate our heads, our thinking, so we do what he wants? Is God forcing people to make decisions his way? Or does God make decisions and then change people's memories so they thought they made it freely? <laughs> no, but he influences. You look at Saul, Paul. Now, he was going a whole certain direction, and God certainly stood right in his path and, and presented a redirection, and Paul took it. And David with Nathan? But what about King Saul? He was also influenced. How many times did God come to King Saul and give him messages? But he rejected them. He went another way. So it didn't determine the outcome. How about Pharaoh? Did, did Pharaoh have truth presented him over and over by Moses? But it did determine what Pharaoh did? No. Pardon? About Balaam. Balaam, also. Who wanted to curse Israel. Begged over and over again. God said no, no, no. But he kept manipulating a way to do it. Trying. And yet out of his mouth came words that could be construed as not his own. Or was it, in fact, that Balaam really was convicted that he really had to speak these words? He's the only things he could, could speak. His conviction was such that he couldn't do anything else. Yeah. I, no, no. Yes. Some of these life-changing experiences come out of our own experience of seeking God, uh, the own answer to our own prayers. So I want to know how we balance God's foreknowledge with human free will to control the outcome of events. And I've got an example I would like to walk you to see if this, this gives us insight into this. This is the example of Jonah. The example of Jonah. If you ever wonder why God called Jonah, I think it's because he has foreknowledge. He knows Jonah's decisions. See, Jonah hated the Ninevites. When God called Jonah, Jonah did not want to go. So in fact, Jonah said no and basically ran away, got on a ship and headed out to say, I'm not going. See, I think all this was exactly because God knew exactly what choices Jonah was going to make. Dealing with a human person, do you ever anticipate or kind of predict or have a good confidence, I know if, how they're going to respond to this. I know they're going to do this. If you know somebody so well, you can predict. And do you anticipate their decision, use that information in a decision you're going to make? Now, have you ever done that? Now, knowing what that person's going to do, and you incorporate that into your decision making, and they, in fact, do what you predicted, have you restricted their freedom? You haven't restricted their freedom. This is what I believe God is doing with his knowledge. He still leaves us free. So let's, uh, let's, let's walk this through. God looks down on Nineveh, sees how selfish the city is. Time is running out. They're on a self-destructive course. God loves these people. He wants to turn them around, yet they are in darkness about God, and they worship a pagan god, Dagon, the god of the fish, the fish god. God wants to send them a message of salvation, a message to, to repent. Who does he choose? Who will the people of Nineveh listen to? God looks down and sees Jonah, how Jonah, how Jonah will respond. He sees the refusal. He knows he's going to run away to the sea. And God, remember now, Jonah's already committed himself to God's cause as a prophet for God and said, I'm your man. I'm going to speak for you. I'll do, I'll do what you want. So he's already said, God, hey, you can use me in your cause. So he's already given God that permission. So God calls Jonah. Go, Jonah freely chooses to go to the sea, and then God uses his power to bring a storm, which results in Jonah being thrown in the sea, and God uses the power to bring a great fish and directs that fish to swim over to the shores near Nineveh, which coughs up Jonah on the sea. And perhaps there are some people from Nineveh nearby. And what do they see? A great fish god spitting uh, a person out of his mouth who walks into Nineveh and tells him to repent. What do they do? They repent. 
So God brings them to repentance by <laughs> choosing uh, to ma- choose a person who they knew all along. He knew exactly how to respond, and he orchestrated events to bring about his outcome. But everybody was free at the same time. What do you think? Hand. Yeah. Different slant on this as well. The question that comes to my mind is also, why Jonah? And I think that God chose Jonah as much for Jonah's need to look at his hatred in his heart as it was for the people of Nineveh needing the intervention. Do we find Jonah ever softening? No. I mean, I don't dispute that this would be a blessing for Jonah too. No, but, to, but to allow to come face to face with whatever that prejudicial element or that part in your own heart that needs to have that, have you look at it and examine it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has an influence also on some of the, the experiences that God brings into the life. No, I, 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 I agree. Yes. Here. It's not just God knowing Jonah. It was Jonah knowing God. Because Jonah, the reason he ran away is he knew that if he went, they could repent and God would forgive him. And then he'd look like a liar. So when it happened, he's sitting there. Mo- I knew you weren't going to destroy him. I knew it. But I thought you'd yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. See, God, but see, do you see anybody's free will being violated in this story? No. No. no, God never violated Jonah's free will, yet God was able to, with his foreknowledge, choose a person to do exactly what God needed to be done to influence these people to the greatest extent. Yes. I think part of it was for Jonah's benefit. That's the whole issue with the, the squash plant or whatever the thing was with the worm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Yes, I think God is so brilliant. He's able to weave together both sides of the equation to help both sides simultaneously. I think that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. No, well said. Um, Tuesday, second paragraph. It says, of course humans do have free will. Or did we just read that? No, we didn't. Okay, uh, have free will, free choice. Uh, God made us that way. As beings who can love, we had to be given free, uh, free choice because that love, because love that is forced cannot be love. To make us capable of love, God had to make us free. And yet God's power is so great that even with human free will, he knows the future perfectly, regardless of free choices that we make. I think this, is, this point here is, is very important, that love that is forced cannot be love. This is a huge point. Understand the implications. Take that truth. I think that's exactly true. Do you all agree with that? Yes. yes. Implications to our theology. What can God not be saying then? Love me or I'll kill you. Love me, or in the end, I'll be forced to use my power to torture and kill you. And keep you artificially alive forever while I torture and kill you in some instances. And do you understand? This idea is ubiquitous in Christianity. Essentially, all Christianity, including the, I don't want to say majority, but I, I sometimes feel like it's the majority in our own church, teach this idea that God, in order to be just, must be be the, the imposer of death. And, and, th- and I've been doing some studies recently about some of the, the philosophies around the world, like the Eastern philosophies. And what I've discovered is the Eastern philosophies are built on the landscape of an eternal dualism, the yin and the yang, the eternal existence of both good and evil. And get your mind around this idea. Why does that idea exist? Because Satan can't exist without God. Can, can Satan exist without God? No. So, good can't be gotten rid of if Satan is to live. Good has to survive. But, 
Satan doesn't want to die. So he wants there to be a universe where there's an eternal existence of good and evil. In balance, equally opposite each other, in perfect balance. So he has the equal authority and power to God, countering God's good. Okay? This is the eternal existence of good and evil. Eastern philosophies are based on this. Guess what, guys? Because of Imperial Rome, Christianity is now based on this. Christianity now teaches an eternal existence of good and evil. God is, and in two ways, either good and evil contained in God who is loving, but also the source of suffering and death imposed upon his creatures. Merciful, but also just. Oh, merciful, but also just, where he becomes the source of pain, suffering, and death inflicted eternally, so he's the eternal source of good and evil, or a heaven with an eternal existing tormenting hell. Eternal existence of good and evil. The same landscape. It's Satan's great deception. True biblical Christianity teaches God is good. He pre-existed and created all things good. There was no evil until it was originated and found in Lucifer. And now because of mankind's sin on earth, there is a transient temporary period where good and evil do exist together on earth today. But there's coming a time when evil will be expunged from the universe and there will be eternal good again only. That's true Christianity. But that doctrine, that, that idea of imperial Rome's change in law has infected Christianity where Christians actually teach the eternal existence of good and evil now. It's really, really sad. Yes. What God's power uh, really is in that last sentence that we read is the power to inspire faith. That everything is built on faith because otherwise what would those people who came before Christ you know, have had to offer, even though they had good deeds. And what would anybody have to offer to God except faith in Him? That, right. yeah, offer sounds almost like an offering. Okay, faith is something that is is totally apart from all of our other other choices. It, but it's something that that we have to develop through our choices. Faith, faith, and fear are the two issues that I've that I've heard at at uh, conflict or at, at, at opposition in this discussion here today and that have to do with the way the human race has been going for the longest time. Where does faith originate? It's a gift from God. So it's nothing we offer, something we receive. That's right. Okay. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that the faith that we have <coughs> is the most critical part of our relationship to God as it would be for anybody. And what's interesting to me is that God respected the faith of the Ninevites even though their faith was actually in Dagon. In other words, He gave them something to have faith in so that they would repent. It does remind me of C.S. Lewis's uh, um, books, the, uh, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the seventh book, is it in the seventh series, seven of them, right? The seventh book, The Last Battle, when the uh, young uh, worshiper of Tash ends up in, the, in Aslan's country with Aslan. He says, how am I a worshiper of Tash here with you, Aslan? And Aslan says, all the good deeds you did in the name of Tash are all, are all done uh, truly to me and worship given to me because no good thing can be done in honor, Tash. And all the evil deeds people do in my name 
are actually honor and service given to Tash because no evil thing can truly be done in my name. And it's exactly right on. It's what Scripture teaches. It's not the, the, the verbal label that you give to God, whether you call him Yahweh, Joshua, Jehovah, Jesus, uh, Rose of Sharon, Lily of the Valley. Uh, it doesn't matter what name you give him. The real issue is, what do you understand his character to be? And do you practice his methods in your life? And if you call him by a different name, because ultimately Scripture will tell you, if you read widely, that the true name of Jesus is a name no one knows. It says that in Revelation, that his, he has a name that no one knows. That's his true name, if, if you want to talk about it. But his character, and this is, this is the real thing, the life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. And so you, in my opinion, you can use whatever English, German, French, Swahili language label you want. doesn't matter as long as you understand his true character and practice his methods. Which really is a very critical thing for people who think that in order to be saved, you have to just almost, it's almost a mystical thing of just saying the name of Jesus, accepting the name of Jesus. And it's really just associated with the actual name of Jesus rather than the character, rather than the relationship, rather than something bigger. We think of, well, every knee will bow and, you know, proclaim his name. No, every knee will recognize who he is. Yeah, exactly. And then we proclaim his name. In the Jewish culture, the name is a reflection of character. Jacob was a deceiver until he was converted, then his name was changed to Israel, one who is victorious with God. Okay, Daniel, one who judges or brings judgment. I mean, the name is reflective of character. And so, you know, this is what it means to have his name written on our hearts or minds and so forth, is to have his character there. Yes, last question, we've got to close. You may use the correct name and still have the wrong character, and so not all roads lead to God. No, that's right. You know, you can be on the wrong road and yet having the correct name. Well, that's what Jesus said. They would come to me in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name, not in the name of Buddha, Harry Krishna. And he said, get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They did not know his true character, even though they had the label right. So that's exactly right. Um, there's a lot more in the notes. Uh, the notes hopefully will be up later this afternoon for those who want them that we didn't get to today. Let's, let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are so awesome, that you are perfect love, that you live outside time, that you know past, present, and future, and that you are constantly intervening for our good. And even when you know the mistakes we're going to make, you look at us with compassion and pity, knowing that we are hurting ourselves in those mistakes, and you want to heal us and deliver us from our own selfishness, Lord. We pray now that you will send your spirit to take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in our hearts and minds. Erase the, the wickedness from our characters and, re, and, and recreate us to be like you, that we can be shining lights in this world. And, and we pray that you open avenues of communication within our church and within the world church, that this message about you will go around this world and lighten the world, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.